Jesus, we are so thankful for you. Um, we are thankful for your gospel. Um, we're thankful that we get to come together to worship, Lord. Um, and, and I know that we pray that prayer aloud. God, we're so thankful that we get the time to come together, but Lord, would we be deeply thankful that we get to know you and trust you and love you because you have loved us greatly. Would we be deeply thankful that we have the opportunity uh, and the freedom to come together and to worship you freely and to trust you freely and to know you intimately because of your love for us? Lord, would you speak to our hearts today? It's these things we pray in your name, Jesus, and by your power, Holy Spirit, and for your glory, Father God. Amen. All right. Well, so, um, hey, I'm Ross. I, was, I had my whole introduction set up, and then Seth literally told you everything I was going to say. So, um, hey, I'm Ross. I grew up in and out of churches. I spent just enough time in churches growing up um, to have like a vague idea of the things of God, the, uh, the things of what like a Christian believes. Um, and I was also a fairly moral kid. Uh, I wasn't a fairly moral kid because of the church stuff. I was a fairly moral kid. I say fairly because like, I mean, who's really a moral kid? But um, my father was a federal agent and I watched him catch my brother and sister doing a lot of dumb stuff. And so I didn't do a lot of dumb stuff because I didn't want to get caught. Uh, until of course, eventually I did a lot of stuff that I shouldn't have done. Um, but growing up, I would have called myself a Christian, which is why when I was 19 and I showed my friend Alyssa my favorite song of the time, uh, she gave me a really funny look. Um, you see, I was enamored at the time by this song, uh, and specifically one verse from the song. Uh, and I'm going to recite it for you. Sheridan, can I borrow a guitar? I'm just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. Um, nobody wants that. The lyric goes, I went to heaven but couldn't get in for what I'd done. I said, please take me. He said, you're crazy. You had too much fun. That was the song that my heart sang. And I, like I said, considered myself both a Christian and a moral kid, which is really, really, like, the irony there is astounding that that would be what my heart grabbed onto. Um, and it just resonated with me so deeply. And so it's, it's my fear. Like, how many Christians go to church every Sunday and live with those ideas stirring in their soul? How many Christians come to church every Sunday and leave thinking that's the message, right? Um, if I had time to tell you my whole testimony, I would, and maybe one day I'll, I'll get the chance. But I bring that up because it's these very verses that we're looking at today that set me on the journey to start to understand God's love for me, God's pursuit of me, God's righteousness despite my brokenness, God taking uh, the punishment for my sin to save me. So, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously with him give us all things? And who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, and who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus is, who is the one who died, and more than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who indeed is interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. 
So no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am certain that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, and all of creation could separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen? That's the sermon. You guys have a good day. Um, friends, we have a reason to hope. As I was looking there, uh, looking through this passage the past couple of weeks, trying to trace Paul's thought, right? Romans 8 has a lot of awesome verses that you could take and put them on a coffee mug, and they just sit really well by themselves. But this is all one big thought, and I was trying to trace what God's message to us here was. Uh, and I noticed, I'm not going to put it up on the board, uh, on the screen, board. I'm a teacher, so it's a board behind me usually. Um, but starting in verse 17 of Romans 8 and 17 through 24, we get this pattern of a lot of talk about suffering and a lot of talk about hope. There's this thread of, hey, the world is broken. It's groaning for God's redemption, and we have hope that he's faithful to complete it, that he's going to redeem all of it. And it goes a little farther down in 28 and says, hey, in light of all of that, in light of all the suffering, we know that God's going to work all things together for our good. And more than that, he has justified you. He has called you, justified you, and glorified you. All of that sets up this question, right? With that at the forefront, he jumps into this question. He says, so if God is for us, despite all of this, despite all of this brokenness, this groaning, this yearning, um, this hoping, this suffering, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is like, well, Paul, if you look down a couple sentences, but there's a lot that could be against us. We've got famine, we've got danger, we've got sword. But, but what harm can it do? against the God who has the power to turn all things for your good, for your benefit, against the God who measured the waters of the earth in the hollows of his hand. Look, if he's holding you, who could be against you? Who could stand a chance? And God is on your side. Isn't that a reason to hope? That if isn't an if, it's a since. Seth stole that one last week for me. It's a since. Since God is on your side, who can be against you? But look, right? This isn't a prosperity gospel verse, right? It's not saying that nothing's going to go wrong. It's not saying that there's nothing that's going to kind of come up against you uh, and everything's going to be easy. The whole context of the verse proves that that's not it. When we look at verse 35, it proves that that's not what he's saying. When we look at what he just said, he says, suffering happens, but there's hope in the God who is for you. So what Paul is doing here is he's setting up the first of five questions that he's going to ask, five rhetorical questions, uh, and he's trying to set up a case for our assurance for us to be able to rest assured that no matter what, God loves us. He's trying to show us one thing, and that is that the work is complete. So let's dig into the five questions. If you look back up at the passage, um, there we go. Um, so, if God is for us, who can be against us? We just answered that, right? No one of consequence. Nothing that could really stand a chance. Um, goes to question two. He who didn't spare his only son, how will he not also graciously or freely with him give us all things? Okay. This one we're going to take a minute on because it's kind of a weird argument. Um, the baseline argument for how he's using logic here is the sort of argument of like the greater favor um, so, like, if you've done the greater thing, the lesser things aren't as big a deal, right? 
For example, if you let somebody come stay at your house, right, wouldn't you also be fine with them taking a shower? Wouldn't you also be fine with giving them a blanket? Wouldn't you also be fine with feeding them breakfast if they asked? Right, so if he's done the big thing, the little things aren't that big, right? Not a big deal. Um, and I know our human instinct isn't to go that way with logic, twofold. Reason one, our selfishness, right? Sometimes we're like, I did one big favor, and now they're asking us for more favors? I just did a big thing for him, right? That's where my logic typically goes when I looked at this first until I studied it more to realize how much I should have studied it before. Um, but even more than that, we do the same. We apply our logic for our own selfishness to God sometimes. We do this thing. We're like, look, he's already given us his son. I'm not going to really ask him for this other stuff, man. I got the rest of it. Like, he's justified me, but this sanctification thing, I'll take it. It's good, God. Don't worry. I, you, you did the big thing, right? I got this. No, you don't. You don't. Um, not only can you not do it on your own, he's already done it for you. He's doing it for you. And on top of that, you can't exhaust God. He's not going to get tired of doing the favors of providing you what you need for a life of godliness, a life of holiness, a life of sanctification. He's not going to get tired of you asking him for help to be who you're supposed to be. So having done it, he's going to keep doing it. I said, that, uh, I don't know if I said this, there's like three big points to this. this is like point, that was point one and two, point two and a half. Just going to throw it in there. This also is not a prosperity gospel verse, right? This is not saying that because God gave you Jesus, you get everything. You can be healthy and wealthy and free. And it's going to be happy. No, again, not it. I'm talking specifically about the things of God. It would be nice if that's what he was saying. Given the context, surely not what he's saying. Um, point three. This is the one I really want you to hone in on, okay? Jesus has already paid the price for your sins. You're already covered. You're already adopted. You're an heir with Christ. There's no condemnation on you. So I know, here's the deal, I know that sometimes our sin and our shame make, make us think that maybe God's going to like turn his back on us, right? Like we get so caught up in our own nonsense and our own sin and our own shame, our own guilt for the things that we've done that we kind of get this feeling that God's got like buyer's remorse, He's like, mm, maybe I get a refund for this guy. Like, those ones I'll keep. This guy, look at what he's doing, man. I got the receipt. I'm going to take it back. The work's already been done. He's not going to walk it back. He's going to continue to give you what you need in order to live a life for him and to order for your sanctification. Look, here's the deal. This might surprise you. He already knew what you were going to be like before he saved you. You're not a surprise to him. Your newest failures, right? So we get this mindset, right? Uh, and maybe you don't. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm weird. I get this mindset that like, I got saved, and so all of my sins before I got saved were taken care of, and now I got to ask for forgiveness each time, which you do. You need to ask for forgiveness. You need to repent. But we get this feeling that like, each time, like, I heard this theology once. I don't know how I feel about it. That like, every time you sin, you're crucifying Jesus again. That's a weird one. When he died on the cross, what he said is, it is finished, right? Your sins, up to when you got saved, were future sins to Jesus on the cross. Your current sins were future sins for Jesus on the cross. Your future sins were future sins for Jesus on the cross. The future is taken care of. So having done that, he's not going to walk it back. You're not surprising him with your newest sin. 
Do you need to repent? Yes. Do you need to walk in faithfulness towards him? Yes. But he's not ashamed of you, and he's not going to turn his back on you, right? So please, run back to him. Stop hiding. Stop running if you are. Stop being afraid that you're not good enough. He loves you. The first verse already said that nothing can stop God. This verse is just saying God's not going to stop God. God's not going to change his mind. He's not going to turn his back on you. He's already given his son for you. How did he not complete the task? So, um, the work is already complete. We move to question three, right? Who can, if we put the verse back up, who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Cool. Who can bring any charge against uh, God's elect? It is God who justifies. What did we just learn two verses ago? God is for you. He's on your side. So when he justifies, he's justifying you, right? So this isn't saying, kind of like the first verse isn't saying that nothing's actually going to come against God. This isn't saying that there's not a charge against you. You and I both know you're in sin. I'm in sin. We constantly sin. There are charges against us, right? There are pending charges. What it's saying is there is not a charge that Satan can bring against you to God and say, look what he's doing, look what she's doing, that God hasn't already justified. You're taken care of, guys. You're loved. You're forgiven. There's nothing, there's no charge that God who justifies can't handle and hasn't already handled. Your sins have been pinned to Jesus on the cross. Let's keep going. Ross, this is a really gospely verse. This is a super gospely verse, man. I love it. Um, question four. Who can condemn you? Not trying to be repetitive. Hey, no one. Right? Your condemnation has been taken care of, right? You deserved it. We all deserved it. It's been taken care of. Christ Jesus took your condemnation already. He died for you already. And then, I love this part, he came back. And now he intercedes on our behalf. Isn't that neat? See, I don't know about you, kind of like we already talked about. I sometimes get this idea that um, Jesus kind of holds a grudge against me. Like, because of my sin, right? So like he went to the cross and he came back, but now he's like, I mean, yeah, I love you, but like, come on, man. Look, he came back, and he's praying for you. He's contending for you. He's interceding on your behalf before God. He's not grumpy at you. He likes you. He loves you. He's not grumpy at you. Sometimes, and maybe you don't do this, maybe I do this, but um, sometimes we convince ourselves that Jesus only loves us because he went to the cross for us. You ever get that feeling? You ever like, you have your theology switched there? That's not the case. The Bible is very clear. He endured the cross for you because he loved you. Now, yes, you're only righteous before God. You're only perfected before God. You're only adopted into the family of God because of the cross, but the love came first. He doesn't only love you because he died for you. He loved you, and so he died for you. You need to keep that in your mind, especially as we go into the fifth question, right? Uh, and our next point, look, you can rest assured in God's love, right? If he went to the cross because he loved you, then you can rest assured in his love. So what, can we put it back up there? I have it all memorized mostly in like a whole chunk, but when I have to go halfway, I get a little lost there. Uh, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Can tribulation or distress or persecution or nakedness, or sorry, famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. 
fear guarded as sheep for the slaughter. Now in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm sorry, but isn't that a list? That's a big list. That's a, that's a rough list. And like, sometimes I feel like, I don't know if I feel like if I vibe with that list. Like, listen, listen. Do y'all believe that truth? Have you ever met somebody who's walking around going, oh, got stabbed on my way to work today. God sure loves me. Not me. Oh, I haven't eaten all week. Praise God. The Bible is telling us right here that these moments when we're suffering, when we're prone to doubt, those aren't evidence that God doesn't love you. It's not evidence that God is against you, despite what the outside world tells you, right? And it will tell you, right? That's the whole thing. It's what they told Jesus. The Jews told Jesus on the cross, look, if God loves you, if he's for you, he'll get you off the cross. If God loves you, Christian, why are bad things happen to you? I don't know, man. Baby's not real. Look, that's not how it works. And as I dig into this verse, before we dig more into like what's going on here, I want to remind you that the person who's preaching this, right, is not somebody who's not been in pain. This is Paul the Apostle. Can we throw up the Second Corinthians verse? Um, look at his list of like what he's been through as he's writing to other people saying, hey, when you're suffering, God still loves you, right? How many times has he been beaten He's been uh, received uh, off to the point of death, right? He's been stoned. He's been beaten with rods for 40 lashes minus one. Um, he's been, if we go to the next section, uh, shipwrecked night and day, adrift at sea. That's terrifying. A full 24 hours just floating at sea, right? Frequent journeys, often in danger. I'm not going to go through the whole list. This is a man who's well acquainted with suffering and grief and sorrow. And this is the man he's looking at you and saying, hey, when you're suffering, when you're in grief, when you're in sorrow, when you are distressed, God still loves you. See, I know that in times of crisis, we feel like we've been abandoned. We feel like we're alone. We feel like God has left you or even worse, he's punishing you. He's not. God is for you, and he loves you, and he's on your side. All of these sufferings are not proof that he doesn't love you. Uh, and because, because he has the power to work all things for the good of those who love him, you come out of those hard things more than a conqueror. Because he's on your side, he will use those moments to grow you. We're going to come back to this, but I need to talk about something first. This verse only makes sense if we go into it understanding something. Love here is the same love we were talking about just a couple minutes ago. It's the love that led him to the cross, right? It's the love that cares for you. It's the love that guides you. The love that's working for your good, right? The love, the love that turns wrongs into rights. This is not the same love as the way you love the office or tacos, right? I love tacos. Um, this isn't like... Oh, She's so neat. Look at her suffering down there. Homeless man. Look at him. Oh, he just got stabbed. I love, these kids are so neat. I love them. Man, so cute. Right? That's not what, I don't mean to make light of actual suffering, but like that's, that's sort of what we get the vibe of sometimes. Like, oh, God still likes you. He does. But even the Bible points out, right? What good is it to tell someone, hey, go, be warm, be well-fed, without giving them what they need? So if that's what the Bible says, like that doesn't work as like a form of love, then when the Bible tells you that God loves you. He's not just saying, keep it up. You got it. 
Proud of you, bud. Right? That's not what's going on. God here is under, uh, sorry, I need you to understand that God is reassuring you that the same love that led him to the cross to die for you is still at work in your suffering. God's love is like an underground revolution in the face of your pain, okay? He's working for you in those moments. Now, maybe it's working for you to end the suffering. Maybe it's working for you to give you strength to endure. Maybe it's working for you to grow you to be more like Christ in the end. I think it can be different things in different times. Now, I know you're probably like me. When that happens, when we get to the point where we're like, we're suffering, and those are like sort of the three options God's working for good, I know which one I want. The one I want is, God, please end the suffering. Like, cool, I want to be more like Christ, but like later. Let's, let, suffering stops now. We can do that later, right? You don't get to pick and choose. Um, and it's not wrong, though. It's not wrong to want the suffering to end. I want to give you an analogy. We're going to shift gears here. Um, the Israelites, when Jesus came, the Israelites were hoping for a Messiah who was a warrior king. They wanted to kick the Romans out of their land so that they could worship God freely and rightly as they saw. That's not a wrong thing to want. But that wasn't Jesus' plan. He wasn't worried about the immediate kicking the Romans out and stopping the suffering. He was working on something much more deep and much more crucial and I think it's the same thing with our pain. We want the pain to end. And that's good. That's not wrong. But I think sometimes God is working something much deeper in those moments than just ending the pain. The God who is for you, who has justified you, who has sent his son to die for you, who loves you, is working in and through your pain. He's turning it into something more, something beautiful. He's turning it into your good. Like the pain of childbirth gives way to something indescribably beautiful also, kind of. Life is indescribably beautiful. Babies are. You've seen a newborn baby. You know they're not the cutest. It's okay. Um, but it's in this way, right? It's in this way that we understand what Paul says in 37, which is that we are more than conquerors, Right? He's not just ending our suffering. That's a good conquering. He's not just giving us the strength to endure. That's fine. We don't just come out the other side. We come out the other side stronger. We come out the other side more like Christ. Now, hear me out. I am not saying that God causes your pain to grow you. That's not what this verse says. Whether that's theologically true and whether that's a helpful thing to tell somebody who's suffering, we can talk about later, right? Um, but that's not what this verse specifically is saying. Um, and with that, real quick. Nope, never mind. I'm not trying to be silly. I had another note, but I don't know if I'm going to fit that in with enough time. Um, so, I'm not saying that he's causing your pain. What this text is saying is that he is for you and that he's working for your good. He intercedes for you. He loves you. And nothing can and nothing will ever change that. He's not going to walk it back. There won't be a time all of a sudden when it's not true. There's not going to be a time where all of a sudden your suffering is him punishing you and he's walked away from you and you're just uh, in the depths of your sin. If you've been saved, if he has proven that he loves you by sending his son to die for you, He's not going to walk it back. And because of that, because of this, right, we get to the verse 38 and 39. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. 
we can dig into some of those, right? If, if we have time, right? We can talk about how like, we talked about angels and rulers and authorities. One of those three rulers or authorities, that's like demons, right? So angels, demons, earthly powers. Hey, there's not a presidential candidate no matter where you sit on the political spectrum. There's not a presidential candidate who can separate you from the love of Christ. Um, no rulers. Um, as a matter of fact, height and depth, just to dig into this real quick, this was a really interesting note. The words height and depth are talking about, like, the paths of stars, right? So the highest point and the lowest point of a star's path. The idea here is in your path through life, whether your highest or lowest point at the beginning or the end, there's nothing in your path that can separate you from God's love. And that love is working for you. It's working for your benefit. Isn't that a reason to hope? I almost ended this sermon kind of right about there. I almost ended the sermon without like real application. I think that would have been nice, right? To just let us sit in the sweetness of these words. But I realized that at this very moment, and, and I know some of you who you are, that there are some of you in here who are in the midst of despair. You're in the midst of distress, in the midst of suffering. That the numbness of your pain it's causing these verses that should shine with and shimmer with this glorious hope. They're only sort of like faintly shimmering, right? Like, yeah, that's helpful, but man, like pain's still real. And every person in here, I know, every one of you has some sort of hurt. Like, I know we look really well put together. We get, uh, and I'm not saying we're not good at being real with each other, but especially on Sunday mornings, we're really good at the, hey, how you doing? So, I'm great, and you, Right? That's what we do on Sunday mornings. That's what we're all supposed to do. But I know that every single one of you in here has some sort of hurt, right? The pain of loss, loss of family members, the pain of um, miscarriages, the pain of strained relationships, right? With your parents, with your siblings, with your friends, the pain of loneliness. We just came out of a year and a half, 3,000 years. I don't know how long this pandemic has been, right? A big, long pandemic where we're all feeling a bit lonely and isolated and our anxiety, right? Our depression is skyrocketed, especially those of us who actually struggle with real anxiety and depression. I'm not saying some of us don't, but there's, I mean, physical pain, mental, mental health issues. Maybe your job is stressing you out. Maybe it's just the brokenness of your own sin, the brokenness of your own shame. We're all hurting. So church, I'm begging you in this time to be the hands and feet of Christ to each other, to dig into the pain, to push past the awkwardness, to admit that you're not okay when you aren't, to lift one another's burdens. Please dig in with each other. Please find your friends, your community group. If you're not in a community group, find somebody and just tell them how you've been. The world will know that we follow Christ by this, the way that we love one another. And I think that perhaps that is the way that burdens are eased in Christ. Perhaps that is the way that God shows his love through our suffering. Perhaps that is the way that God grows us. It's not just some mysterious ethereal power, right? He's going to work in you. Don't, don't worry. Just trust it, right? I think that can be true. I think that, we can, that he can work in and through your pain and suffering and turn it into goodness and glory internally, and he can work in your heart. But I also think 
Amen. I also think that it is the tangible love of God that you share with one another that's going to help us begin to look more like Christ. It's going to help us to ease burdens. It's going to help us to find the strength to push through. Would God's ceaseless love for you empower you to love one another ceaselessly? Church, as we, um, as we grow close to Thanksgiving, right, I hope that you rest in his love. I hope that you feel the love of Christ from one another and just from his own being uh, in your soul. I, I hope that you find rest, friends. Rest your weary soul in him. If you're running, if you're hiding, if you're fighting him, stop. Stop wondering if you're good enough. Stop wondering if he still loves you. Stop wondering if you deserve your suffering. Stop wondering if you deserve his love. Stop wondering if you can still be a Christian after a million mess-ups. God is for you. No one can be against you. And God is not going to walk back the finished work of the cross. No one can bring a charge that isn't justified by his own blood. No one can condemn you because Christ has already taken the condemnation on himself. Nothing, no amount of suffering or anything else in all of creation can separate you from the love of God, from his pursuing grace and kindness, from him seeking your good. The, um, the song I mentioned at the beginning, uh, I showed it to my friend Alyssa, uh, and her being a faithful steward of God's love gave me a really weird look, like, oh, that's your favorite song, okay. Um, I can still recall the concern in her face, and I didn't understand it at the time. Uh, it was only a couple weeks later when we were hanging out again that she showed me this video. I won't say who it's by because it's um, controversial to the person, but the video did faithfully preach the heart of this text, of God's assurance of, sorry, our assurance of God's love for us. And it's because of that, because of his mercy in my life, that I want to show you the song that my heart sings to this day. Truthfully, right? I'm not trying to be cheesy and just tie it to the other side. Um, truthfully, um, these lyrics are what my heart sings. I can't do anything to deserve what he's done. He just loves me because he loves me because he loves me just because he does. Friends, he loves you. Never doubt it. Let's pray.